Hello, Dr. Yasser. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks, Haider. Well, thanks for coming on today. Um, I heard you on a, uh, a group, uh, an organization of Iraqi doctors uh, here in the UK. Um, <clears throat> I think I, I think the whole population is is uh, is a doctor in Iraq. You know, it's like the uh, it's like the parents' dream, isn't it, that their sons and daughters become doctors? Absolutely. You know, it, it's considered you know, a big achievement, not only to the person, but to the whole family. Yes. And um, I remember when I got uh, the high marks uh, at the end of um, what is the equivalent to um, A-levels in the UK, I had doubts that I want to be a doctor. I uh, I had only one uncle who, who was a doctor and he seems to be working very hard. So I, I didn't like being a doctor but I really like to be a dentist because I had a cousin who was a dentist and he seems to be very happy. So I thought to myself, can I apply to be a dentist? And then my family said, no, it's either a doctor or nothing. So, so what I did, I, you know, when you fill the form about your preferences, uh, which university you want to go to, I put as the first preference, um, College of Medicine, Baghdad Univers University, and then the second preference was um, the School of Dentistry in Baghdad University. So I didn't put different medical schools in Iraq. I just put the first choice as a you know, medical school, second choice to, to be a dentist. And this was very bizarre because many people would put another medical school in Baghdad. For example, we had the Mustansariya. Um, but yeah, I felt influenced by my family's wishes wishes to to be a doctor and this just shows you how much you know families and parents you know highly value being a doctor was it more sort of mother or father that was influencing oh, you more both of them yeah. and, and everyone actually <laughs> everyone said no you know you have to be a doctor you've got your grades you've got good marks you have to be a doctor and i remember when we went for the interview, um, for the um, kind of medical school application, um, they asked me, why do you want to be a doctor? <laughs> you know, the panel. Um, and I said, because my uncle is a doctor. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and they, you know, it's unfortunately, it's a tick box exercise. And, you know, they approved my application. But here in the UK, it's completely different because, you know, uh, the applicant to the medical school will go through um, an interview process and stations, you know, stations about personal statements, stations about discussing with them and medical, legal or ethical issues. And they, you know, they, they do the UK CAT test as well. So it's not easy to be a doctor in this country, but it could be easier in our countries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean... I think society is predicated there on on status um, and particularly knowledge status and, and, and financial status. And, you know, doctors have clout uh, in Iraq, you know, both financially and politically. Um, and that's been there for a long time. Um, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a parent's dream, isn't it? An Iraqi parent's dream that all their kids become doctors, all of them, not a single one 
is 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 to do whatever they want um but you know maybe attitudes have changed now you know i mean i'm a parent now and um none of my children are doctors and um but you know i mean i live here in the uk and as you said you know the living in the uk is totally different you know not like back home which is very um yeah any segmented and and um you know everyone's put in a box i guess back home um so it's so your uncle's a, a doctor uh and your parents are not doctors no my uncle was the first doctor in the family ever so we never had any doctor in the family for decades you treated like celebrity uh i don't think so because when i'm when i'm thinking about it uh, it was the 1990s um in iraq you know yeah. doctors were paid very little so well, there is this huge respect for being a doctor but it wasn't a good paid job and i think the audience will be surprised to have a more information about the doctor's salary in in, in iraq Uh, during the sanctions uh, it was equivalent i i can't remember three four dollars a month something like that extremely extremely low paid job um so he no he, he wasn't really treated as a celebrity he was he spent a lot of time in the army so serving in the army serving outside of baghdad and then came back to baghdad um and then you know there were all these economic difficulties and i think thinking about it now i think that's one of the reasons i didn't want to be a doctor when i finished high school because i thought it's you know it's a low paid job and it's really hard job and maybe being a dentist kind of seeing my cousin his way of life you know more comfortable more easy and relaxed i thought maybe a dentist would be better but de- having said that you so know fast cars fast cars fast women you know it's a nice lifestyle <laughs> for our d- dentist colleagues uh i yeah yeah uh, i mean my cousin didn't have that but definitely he was more comfortable and more yeah. relaxed than than my uncle uh, but as i said honestly haider i never regretted that because i think being a doctor helped me along the way in so many ways um so for example just a simple example if i wasn't a doctor i wouldn't be able to leave iraq in 2005 and then work in yemen and then do a little bit of work in egypt and then come to the uk as a doctor I, i you know i wouldn't be able to do all of this if i wasn't a doctor yeah i mean um just thinking about the 90s in iraq it was it was quite horrendous um tell us more about you know what happened in the 90s you know you growing up in iraq during the sanctions yes um really difficult haider um, because you know at that time i was a teenager i was 12 13 years old um and you kind of you, you know you don't take things and kind of analyze them you just take things as they are but definitely what comes to my mind when i remember that um you know that period 1990 to 2003 um is this kind of extreme difficulty in getting anything and everything so extreme difficulty in 
buying a new clothes, for example, buying a new shoes. Um, I, I, I remember I used to go to the medical school in Iraq and, um, <laughs> you know, I had a hole in my shoe <laughs> and I would go there and I would draw, you know, I would take three buses, um, you know, to go to university because we couldn't afford to, you know, have a car or, you know, have someone to take me there. Um, food was really very limited. Uh, we had the ration, so the monthly ration. Um, and again, you know, things were extremely expensive if you want to buy them from the market. I remember I haven't really actually eaten, you know, things like banana or, or apples until 2003. <laughs> so, yeah, just extreme difficulty in getting anything. But at the same time, you know, you are not feeling as if you are suffering or, you know, you are going to die of hunger or something like that, you know, you, you were just thinking to yourself, okay, this is the norm. I'm going yeah. to do the most out of it and you get on with it. <laughs> what was the kind of plan for you during, during those times when you were studying in medical school? What was, what was going through your head in, in terms of future and future plans? Um, or was it just a survival thing? Just surviving the honestly, next day. I think it's just survival, honestly, yeah. Haider. And as I said, I don't want to overanalyze uh, things. And, and 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 but honestly, you know, you you just take every day as it comes. Yeah. Um, yes, you know, we would talk about graduation and oh, we will be excited. We will be a doctors. But again, we knew when we were students that doctors weren't paid a lot, so we weren't really very eager to graduate. So we were just trying to enjoy and you know, and make the most out of the university. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't think about the future, but I always knew that I will be traveling. I always knew that I will be leaving Iraq. I, I don't know why, but I think one of the reasons, you know, the khira, you know, when istikhara, uh, I don't know how to say it in English. Well, um, it's like kind of flipping a coin, like a, a sacred coin, maybe. Like a special exactly. coin. Exactly. So you think of a decision and you pray and then you open the Quran and you read the verses. And if the verses encourage you to do this thing, then this is a good thing. If the verses discourages you. So you read between the meaning or between the words of the verses. And every time or most of the times I used to do istikhara, I come across the story of Moses who you know, left Egypt, um, running away from the people who raised him because he committed a, a crime. And then he went and then he met, a, a, you know, uh, his wife. And then he, he came back to Egypt as a, as a prophet. Um, so most of the times I was doing the istikhara, I will get the story of Moses. Now, statistically speaking, there's a good chance you will get this story because Moses' story has been kind of written repeatedly in the Quran, mentioned repeatedly yeah. in the Quran. So it's, it wasn't very unusual thing. But for me, in, in my thinking at that time, I said, okay, so maybe Allah has kind of decided for me that I will leave my country, I will go somewhere else, I'll become something somewhere else, and then I will, back, well, I will go back to my country. So the dream of leaving was always there, and also the dream of returning was always there. 
And, you know, talking about Prophet Moses, you know, what, what is it about his character that really, that really inspired you and, and really spoke to you? Um, the, you know, his, his extreme ability to adapt, to cope, because this is a man who was raised with the pharaoh, with the pharaoh, um, this is one of the things you need to correct me sometimes, Haider. You know, pronunciation in English, English is still a second language. Hey, mate, so you're in East Anglia, mate. You know, what do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That doesn't You know, even the you know, even the indigenous have have, have difficulty pronouncing things. <laughs> but yeah, he, he was raised, you know, in, in you know in the courts of, of the king of the land, and then suddenly he becomes a fugitive. And he copes with that. And I think the verse that describe him, because when he left Egypt, he didn't eat or have something to drink for a few nights. And he was saying, um, you know, he sat down near the well where the, the people came to take the water and he met his wife there, his future wife. So he sat, he sat near the well and said, Rabbi, inni lima anzalta ilayya min khayran faqir. So, um, so he was, you know, kind of, asking Allah to give him a little bit because he, he's so kind of poor and, and he's going through a very difficult time. Um, so that what really inspired me is how, you know, this, you know, unbelievably strong person coped with this, you know, with this change of status. And, and then he was able to start from scratch and then become what he became and then went back to Egypt. Yeah, it's a very inspirational story, and and um, um, you know, from from everything to nothing to everything to nothing, and it's a very um, uh, you know very profound movement in terms of uh, position in in uh, in society. Now, what was your kind of profound moment where you thought to yourself, right, I've got to I've got to stick it in here because things are really difficult. I mean. You know, you, you know, the um, the Iraq War happened uh, at the beginning of uh, of this millennium, um, and that changed everyone's lives. I think the whole world changed, you know, with the Iraq invasion. Absolutely. Uh, so, I guess I was like most of the Iraqis, trying to be optimistic <laughs> about the new Iraq, so to speak, after after the occupation. So uh, so we had really horrible, horrible times. We lost so many so many friends and family members and what uh, we kept saying it will get better. You know, definitely there is a new system in place, there is new government, you know, they are trying to form the security forces again, the police, the army. So we were always optimistic. Um and then I started to work in the university um, and, and medical school. So it was really very, very nice period in, in, uh, in my life in 2004. Um, and I was working with medical students um, and I enjoyed going to the university and meeting medical students. But in most of the times I would go, you know, there will be road blocks because there was a suicide kind of attack or something like that. Um, so you, you kind of deal with, with 
this reality, but at the same time, you try to stay optimistic. So, you know, I married in Baghdad in 2004. I started a family. I had my first child in Baghdad in 2005 in May. But then you reached to a realization that unfortunately things are not going to get better. And in fact, they were getting worse and worse. So in September 2005, um, my father was um, kidnapped from our home uh, and he's still a missing person. And I think at that time we decided, you know, that's, you know, enough is enough. We, we need to leave. And your dad is a, a, a military man or a... Uh, he was a retired army officer, uh, Haidar, and uh, you know, uh, he worked, of course, in the Ba'ath Party at that time. Yeah. Most Iraqis did to make a living. He worked in um, Al-Sadr City, or what used to be called Saddam City or Al-Thawra City. And he had excellent connections with the local community there. So he knew the people um, and they kind of gave him um, kind of a, not a guarantee, but, you know, a, a reassurance that he will not be harmed because he's, he helped so many people, including people who were, you know, who were in the house, for example, and things like that. But by the way, my background is that we are Musawi, so we are also Shia and Sadeh. Yeah. And, and my father, you know, was highly respected in that community. So they never looked at him as someone who was, you know, part of the government being there to write reports about them and prosecute the community. Um, some of our families still live in El Sadr city. They are very well known there. So he kind of felt reassured that he doesn't need to leave Iraq as most of the Ba'ath party members left. Um, but unfortunately he was wrong and it wasn't from the community mm. <laughs> um, that, you know, that kind of reported him we think maybe some other kind of political parties were, you know, kind of trying to track track down all of Ba'ath members. Um, so it, it's it's very interesting, um, Haider, because at that time my brother was working uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so we were with the new government. <laughs> so we weren't kind of, um, you know. Um, labeled as, uh, you know, Ba'athists or Saddamists. Um, and I remember my brother did his best to, un you know, to try to understand who took my father, why they took him. I mean, definitely they were men in kind of military uniforms, um, but there was absolutely no trace of him and some of the other people who, who were taken uh, at that night. I mean, were you there at the time when it happened? Uh, no, no, I wasn't, okay. uh, because at that time I married and moved yeah. to live with my in-laws, uh, yeah. which was in um, near Al-Jadriya, and my my uh, family home was in uh, Al-Baladiyat in Baghdad. Yeah, and, you know, traveling in, in Baghdad is notoriously very, very difficult. You know, it takes hours and hours to uh, travel between neighborhoods, and, and, and most of it is, is um, there's lots of blockades as well between... Uh, between townships and also there's this divide this is Sunni this is Shia this is this clan this is this clan this is this political party and it's sort of turned into you know quite a you know quite a divide unfortunately you know particularly during that time you know back in 2004 or 5 
where it was very divisional. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, your dad was the, uh, the figurehead, so to speak. Um, in, in what way, sorry? <laughs> you know, figurehead of the family, oh, bringing yes. people together, you know, captain of the ship. Absolutely, because he was the oldest among his siblings. Um, so uh, he had, now this is a test for my memory, but he had seven siblings, um, seven brothers and sisters, and he was the oldest. So yeah, definitely he was a figurehead in that regard and also in our household and also in his work. As I said, kind of people looked at him with respect, with kind of appreciation and the fact that he was a Shia working in a Shia neighborhood during Saddam's kind of regime, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And mm. I mean, I don't know what the ultimate political aim of what happened in, in Iraq, uh, you know, in this sort of invasion and sort of change of Iraq, but, but, but certainly division was top of the agenda, yeah. you know, for, for Iraq. And this was the best way to, to create increased division between people who bring, I mean, if someone brings people together, that's the best solution for a, for a country like that. But instead, you, you had other individuals who um, who got rid of them, people who brought factions together. And, you know, we've always had differences in our country, but we've always found ways of, of, of living together for, for a very long time. Uh, and... Um, you know this thing about conflict i mean conflict never never finishes you know you've always got to find ways of of reconciling the conflict absolutely and, and i talk to my friends a lot about that you know people who are in iraq and uh, and you know I, I give them the example of what happened in south africa for example you know um people just you know, said, okay, enough is enough with violence. We are not going to take revenge of, you know, people responsible for the, 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 the crimes that were committed against local population. Let's, let's just have massive forgiveness and, and, and start again. And I think in Iraq, there was some kind of, some thoughts about that, but not really, did not really materialize. So you still have this kind of deep, debatification movement, you still have lots of hatred towards people who are working with Saddam Hussein. Um, so, um, so unfortunately, we didn't reach to that level. And when I asked my friends why who are in Iraq, they say, because the Ba'athists never showed regret <laughs> for what they have done to the people. And I think this is a bit of exaggeration. I think there was an acknowledgement, maybe not all of them, but there was an acknowledgement that what they have done really took the country in the wrong direction, put the country in different wars and conflicts. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of the things that Iraqis talk about is that there was no real regret from Ba'athists and therefore we, we should continue you know, to have these measures in place to prevent them from returning to the government in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I, I mean, they they seriously need to think about reconciliation. Yeah, at at every level, you know, healing starts with with uh, putting everything down and and 
<laughs> and, and starting fresh and new. Otherwise, the wound will continue. You know, and this wound is, is continuously bleeding, you know, because they haven't reconciled yet. Um, you know, we are fiery individuals and we're very opinionated and we get very hot-headed, but, you know, that's not the answer. And, you know, we can see the effects of, of that continuing in our country. Um, so you decided, obviously, you know, it was a, it was a massive blow and, you know, you, you felt that that's it. This is the, uh, um, this broke the camel's back and I need to, you know, find some sanity in my life. Um, and, and, and how did you end up in the UK? What, you know? How did you find Moses' uh, journey into the UK? Yes, <laughs> was uh, was really difficult, <laughs> of course, uh, Haider, because you know we are talking about two thousand and five, uh, and you know there was massive kind of exile of Iraqis from Iraq to all all countries in the world, looking for a kind of safe place Safety, to live. Safety, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I was very lucky because at that time my uncle was living in the UK and he was working as a doctor here. So, uh, so that helped a lot. Um, so I did um, kind of English language exams and I did the medical licensing exams um, to be a, a doctor in the UK. So I came to the UK in 2006 um, and passed further exams um, here. But the problem is that there was no jobs for overseas doctors in 2006. Um, this was the year that um, the UK changed its rules about um, kind of um, immigration for doctors. So they put the priority for European doctors. And if no European doctor applied to a job, then you could be considered for this job. So there was absolutely no way I could find the job. So I left the UK in 2006 uh, and went to Yemen <laughs> because I, I heard that Yemen is in need of doctors and they wouldn't put much barriers in front of Iraqis. Uh, so we didn't need visa or anything at that time. So I went there and worked for three years. And then thankfully uh, the UK was needing more doctors in 2009 because they fully implemented the European working time directive. Um, so they couldn't really ask doctors to work long hours. <laughs> Um, under, except under special circumstances. Um, and therefore I was able to apply to get a job, do a remote interview from Yemen. <laughs> and I came to the UK in 2009. And, and what was the difference that, that, that you noticed between Yemen and, and working here in the UK? <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story, <laughs> but it's true, honestly, Haidar. One of the simplest things is the size of the hospital. <laughs> so in Yemen, I was working in a small, you know, tiny, tiny hospital. Uh, it's, it's like an, a clinic rather than a hospital, but it did have some, you know, few inpatient beds uh, and it was like a, a two-story building. And in the UK, I worked in Royal Preston Hospital uh, in Preston. It's a huge, huge hospital. <laughs> And one of the things that kept happening to me is that I kept getting lost in the hospital. So, <laughs> so I, I was working in ear, nose and throat department at that time. And I would get a bleep um, 
or a pager to go to the ANE. And then I would find my way to the ANE, but cannot go back to my department. <laughs> so, so that's one of the really the kind of the simplest things, just, just to show you how different, you know, the two experiences were. Did, did, you, did you enjoy it in, in Yemen? What was Yemen like? Yemen was very beautiful, but towards the end, unfortunately, it wasn't for Iraqis. Um, I, I wanted to avoid mentioning that either because you know I, I, you know, I have all the respect and love for Yemenis and Yemen, but unfortunately, in the last two years we were there, things became more difficult because of all this thing with the Houthis in, in oh. the north at that time there was a lot of kind of hate towards Shia. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, if, if they know you are a Shia, they will hate you because they will think, you know, you are with the Houthis or you have participated in, you know, <laughs> in the invasion uh, and you are against Saddam and they love Saddam. They still love Saddam until now. So things became more difficult in that, you know, they started to get tighter visa regulations for the stay of Iraqis in Yemen. Uh, so in 2006, for example, if your visa run out, you go to the local passport office in your local city, in the city you live in, and you renew it for another year. But in 2007, sorry, 2008 and nine, they forced us to go to Sana'a, to the capital, and to apply in the capital only. And in the capital, they will need to know, you know, all of the information about you and, and things like that. And one of the documents I had were, had my name as a Musawi. So, you know, my passport and everything, my surname is Hamid, thankfully. <laughs> but on that one single document, the officer saw that my surname is a Musawi. And guess what he did? He threw the document in my face and he said, you're not welcome here. You are Iranians. You know, we don't like Iranians here. And it was, you know, a moment I will never forget because when he rejected my application, I had to ride a bus for five hours to go back to Ta'as city where I used to work. So imagine 10 hour journey and staying overnight in a hotel and you come back, you know, feeling defeated and humiliated. Um, so that was live there, unfortunately, Haider is that it was really nice. People are friendly. But towards the end, it was unbearable for Iraqis to, to continue living there. Yeah, yeah. You know, once the political situation gets involved in, in daily life, it's, it's horrendous. It's, um, you know, takes that sweet taste out of the mouth very, very quickly. Um, and, and then you decided to sort of go back to the UK with, with your uncle. Was that sort of the time where you thought, right, let's do something here differently? Let's, let's do another Moses trip. Yes, and, and definitely, because as I said, this incident with the passport officer definitely changed my mind about everything. Because at that time, we were thinking, oh, maybe our, you know, some of other mem family members can join us. It's a lovely country. It's a simple country. But that moment was a turning point. So I kept really trying to get, uh, to get back to the UK and keeping an eye on jobs and things like that. Um, and, and this is why when the opportunity came, I, I applied and got the interview uh, and left Yemen. But as you mentioned, you know, uh, Haider, it's all 
you know, the political things that ruin our lives. Because for someone like me who lived in Yemen for three years, I have so many beautiful memories, you know, of the people and the land. But then you cannot forget that single incident. <laughs> so unfortunately, it kind of ruined, you know, ruined the, 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 the period you lived there. But at the same time, as I said, we kept in touch. I kept in touch with people I've known there. And, you know, I mean, you came to the UK and, you know, you are a foreign graduate uh, here in the UK. Um, what was the kind of um, obvious racism that you experienced here in the UK? Or or was there any? Or was it all just, you know, bubbling under the service, the, you know, the usual stuff that we all experience because your surname's different? Yes. Yeah. I. I. I knew. You know, I you're a consultant now. You know. You. Yes. You. You. You're, you're fairly senior now. You don't have to name names, but. Yes. <laughs> no. But I. I knew we are going to mention racism, um, because, I. I think most of us, will experience some form of racism, and I always say, you know, this. I don't believe for a second that this country is racist. You know, this country has, you know, welcomed so many kind of people from different countries, you know, refugees and, you know, all sorts of people came to this country and settled here. Um, so I wouldn't say I experienced racism in a way that would have affected me, you know, uh, but definitely there were these incidents where you felt, you know, for example, that you weren't treated properly by this nurse or this doctor or this patient because you have, you know, you have an accent because of your surname. Um, I remember once a patient told the nurse, so, so the nurse went to the patient in his room. Uh, it was an inpatient unit. And she said, well, Dr. Hamid is here to see you. And I, I, I stayed outside the room just waiting for her to go there. And he said, oh, why don't we have British doctors here? <laughs> but honestly, I went. That's an innocent comment as well. You know, I mean, I mean, I consider that to be, you know, like a jokey comment. That's because of my mindset, really. You know, and I'd go in there and then I'd play with that as well, just to kind of break down those barriers and sort of break that sort of cultural divide. But other people consider it such a major issue, you know, Absolutely. and they call that you know, more than a microaggression, they call that a macroaggression, maybe, you know, to themselves. Whereas back in our time, you know, we, we considered just part and parcel of being here in the UK, whereas now it's treated as a, as a, as a major event. I mean, lots of things have happened since then. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, we are, we are guests here, whether we like it or not. And I think, you know, being a guest, I mean, for us, you know, being first generation immigrants, um, I still consider myself to be a guest here. Um, but I guess the second generation, it's unacceptable because they feel this is home. There is a lot of um, subjectivity about yeah. about this as well. I agree with yeah. you, Haida. And in that incident, I did exactly what you said. I just went and spoke to him and we yeah. had a joke and we really got on along, you know, very well. But I know doctors, uh, some overseas doctors will get so 
offended if the person asks them or the patient asks them, where, where are you from, doctor? You know, they will say, why are you asking? You know, I'm here, you know, it doesn't matter or something like that. I, I would never have such a response. But, but definitely, you know, when you think about racism, for example, in our countries, Haider. So for example, in Iraq, and, you know, we Iraqis looked not in a, in a very good way to Palestinians, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I used to live in Beladiyat and there, there was a, you know, a building complex for Palestinians there in Beladiyat. And, you know, they, they had extremely difficult times, especially after 2003. Um, um, you know, again, if you look at the Arab Gulf, how they treat foreigners, you know, even discrimination is there, uh, there is normal. So for example, you know, even the laws uh, will say that, you know, citizens will have the priority in this service or something like that. So discrimination is legal in these countries. So um, I agree with you, we, we kind of have to look into all of these things in context. And uh, as I said, I don't believe this country is racist. I don't believe most people are racist, but definitely again, just remembering what happened to me in Yemen, it is these small incidents that for, for some reason just stick in your mind and just annoys you. And just you think to yourself, oh, why did I have to go through this? You know, if my country was good, I would go to my country and never take this BS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, things have changed a lot better since then, you know, since 2003, 2004. I, I think people are much more receptive to um, to these aggressions and, you know, uh, being much more culturally sensitive as well. I mean, my kind of gripe about this is that maybe we're becoming too sensitive, you know, and not letting things happen organically. Do you think we've become a bit too sensitive about these things? Definitely. And, and I know maybe someone watching this will think, oh, you know, they are trying to normalize these experiences that, you know, they are, they are unacceptable, you know, and things like that. But I do feel that we, 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 we are oversensitive and, you know, but part of it, you know, if you think about the Black Lives, uh, Lives Movement and, you know, what happened, you know, George Floyd and the the increase in discussions about, you know, racism and things like that and institutional racism in the UK, these were all helpful discussions. These were all helpful things to happen for us, you know, people from uh, minority ethnic groups. But at the same time, as, as, yes, as you said, Haider, it makes you think a lot and it makes you maybe respond in a more aggressive way to when you perceive the other person as racist. Yeah, I mean, there is an oversensitization and, you know, we're fortunate to a certain extent because we are from a, a minority and, you know, we, we have that bit more, you know, allowed to say things, uh, whereas the indigenous population may feel a lot more less inclined to, to, to talk about their views when it comes to race. And I think, you know, that, you know, that is a disservice. That's a disservice to the to the indigenous population. And you know, uh, us as as being guests here, we 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 should um, allow them more of a say 
Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult one. And I think, um, but I think social media has, has uh, blown this out of the water, I think, you know, because most people are in, most people are good. Most people are, uh, are not malicious uh, and, you know, live a decent and inclusive life. I think most people are like that. Unless I, unless I've painted a rosy picture of people. And I, I totally agree with you. It's that social media can really kind of exaggerate things and take things out of proportion. So, for example, you know, I remember when there will be an attack on a person because of their ethnicity on a bus and, you know, somebody record this and put it on social media and, and people will get, you know, so upset. Oh, how this could happen in our streets and our buses? Why no one interfered to stop this? And you think to yourself, oh, my God, I may be a victim of such an attack soon because, you know, it's all over the news. It's all over social media. So it does make you over uh, hyper vigilant that you will be under attack because of these rare incidents that are, you know, that will be happening and then will be recorded. Uh, but as I said, honestly, Haida, the way I looked at it, I look at it is that, yes, there is some form of discrimination. There is some people who would never accept people like you on me <laughs> living here and, and working here. But as you mentioned, they are the minority, the majority of people kind of welcome the contribution that we bring to this country, respect the law. So even yeah. if they have racist views, they know that this is against the law, yeah. you know, to, to be racist. And and therefore we can, we can have a space uh, really to thrive and, and, you know, be part of the society and be proud that we are British citizens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, having that sort of colorful society is a beneficial thing. And, you know, one of the great things about Iraqi society was that it was so colourful and it was made up of different people. Uh, and at the end of the day, they came together, they reconciled each other's differences in order for a common uh, country goal. And, you know, that's something that has been lost over the years um, and, you know, over the, you know, the many wars. And I hope this doesn't happen here, you know, through the many wars of Brexit and COVID and, I don't know, the Royal Family or, you know, whatever the latest uh, football team. I mean, you know, I, ha you know, I hate Man United fans. You know, I can't stand them. <laughs> you know, I'd rather see them. I mean, no, you know, I don't want to see them burn, but, you know, so I'm definitely anti-Man United fans. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're human beings. <laughs> I can't do anything to them. You know, I can, I can. Are you a Man U fan? Uh, I have, honestly, a very low interest in football, unfortunately. Uh, I have, for some come reason, on, I so what know. sport, what sport do you, are you interested in? Not, I'm not a sport person at all, unfortunately. So, um, so World Cup, I have to see the, the semi-finals and the finals in World Cup. When England plays, I have to see that. So, you know, I was yeah. very proud uh, of our last uh, game with the Czech Republic. Um, uh, but apart from these major events, I wouldn't be following the league and following uh -huh. the individual teams, unfortunately. No. So no sport. There must be something that you... Movies? What is it? What is it that you enjoy yeah. doing, watching? Documentaries. Documentaries. Oh. I, I love them. I I remember binging so many documentaries about the war on Iraq. 
um, you know, because it, it just it just gives you this, um, you know, uh, reinforces your belief that history repeats itself, and we don't learn from history. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. What are the sort of things that you think history is repeating itself, and we're not learning from? You know, what are what are your three things that you've noticed that we keep repeating ourselves from history? That wars really complex. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when Western countries participate in wars to change the regime, um, even a corrupted, the most corrupted regime in any country. You know, you cannot just send troops and change, you know, the government or the dictator and then hope that a democracy will flourish <laughs> in that country. So definitely that, you know, the issue of war. Um, the second issue, probably related to the first one, is, is violence. Violence is not the answer at all. So if, if you are part of a, you know, a, a political party or a movement that promotes violence against other people, you, you must know that you are going to fail. Even if you reach power and, and you achieve things, you will fail. If your ideology is based on violence and based on kind of minimizing other people. Um, and the third thing that is a very painful thing, honestly, Haidar, is the loss of human lives and suffering as a result of all of these bad decisions by the governments over the years. You know, so many people were killed, you know, fled their countries, tortured, you know, for bad decisions. I, I remember watching an extended documentary on the Iraq-Iranian war, and you see those young people killed and, and, and taken into, really ca- captured as, as um, kind of prisoners of war on both sides, and you see the misery in their faces. You know, the human cost of a bad decision by someone in the government are so huge and so sad. And, you know, well, let's end on a on a bright note, you know, having said all of these yeah. things, you know, how do you keep smiling and, you know, have a big smile on your face? And, you know, you're quite, you know, you're quite lighthearted, really. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think the most important thing is, is really the family. So I'm really very lucky to have a very supportive wife and children, uh, lovely children and pets as well. I have a cat, makes me laugh all the time, honestly, Haider. And I always tell my patients, if you don't have a pet, please have a pet. <laughs> Having a pet in your life is really helpful. And and just being grateful for what what you have, you know, on an everyday basis, Haider. Just just you know, thanking Allah that you know you have a house, um, you have a job, you have you know, you have other things that you can do, you have friends. All of these things really help. You, you have hair. I'm, I'm thankful I've got some yes. hair. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Even even though it's falling out and it's graying, at least I've still got something to shave. Exactly. You know, for me, the, the glass is always half full rather than yeah. half empty. True. True. Yeah, you've got a glass as well. Even if it's empty, you've got a glass waiting for Absolutely. it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> how 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 can people get get hold of you? What's what's the best way, Doctor Yasser? So I have a YouTube channel, um, Yasser Hamid Psychiatry. Um, I have about six thousand subscribers. 
um, so not that bad. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, they can reach me through the YouTube channel and also through uh, the Facebook page, which is Alamrat um, al or Arabic or Arab Psychiatry. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Yas. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much, Haider. Thank you.